This is episode number 39 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media we hear at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual one pod that's at individual the number one pod we are working on getting back to a normal schedule of taping on wednesday and sunday mornings los angeles time we're not quite there yet uh we will be doing another episode episode number 40 scheduled for this wednesday morning los angeles time Uh, But the following weekend, we will not be doing an episode. After that, for the next several weeks, I anticipate us being back to a normal schedule. And as always the case, there is so much to talk about. I mean, really, you could do a podcast about uh, Donald Trump almost every single day without repeating yourself. But this is particularly the case uh, on this day because we have, uh, frankly, just in the last 24 hours, there's enough news to discuss Uh, for quite a while, and some other things that uh, are probably going to get lost in the shuffle that in a normal presidency would be all we'd be talking about for several days, including (laughs) an increasingly credible allegation of what might be rape uh, by the President of the United States, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But first, we've got to talk about what what happened uh, at the G20 summit, the meeting of world leaders, and uh, specifically the, the side trip that Donald Trump took after the G20 summit, where he became the first American president to cross the demilitarized zone into North Korea, uh, while Kim Jong-un was applauding him. And uh, and frankly, uh, the whole thing was just so unbelievable, so bizarre. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, uh, but so Trump. That's where we are now, where the president of the United States, and I have always said, let me, let me use this as a summary statement, but I've always said that of the many problems with Donald Trump, one of the largest, if not the largest that I have, is that his motivations are about what's good for him today, not what's good for the country or the world tomorrow or the next day. And that is what makes him uniquely unfit for the office, because that is really forget forget about policy, forget about philosophy, forget about competence, intelligence, any of that. That's really the number one quality that any president of the United States should have. That your focus is on what is good for the country and maybe the world in the future, not what is good for you today. And Donald Trump, like a, a teenage boy uh, who hasn't gotten laid, uh, is des- constantly desirous of one thing and one thing only, personal adulation and attention. And that's what he did when he shocked everybody uh, by going into North Korea and shaking hands with Kim Jong-un. This was all set up apparently at the last minute. I'm not making it up. It effectively uh, w- was done, it seems, by Trump tweeting, tweeting, hey, uh, Kim Jong-un, you, basically, uh, you know, publicly uh, texting for a booty call. Hey, hey, you up. Uh, and uh, and this thing came together at the last moment. And uh, and Trump uh, decided to give Kim Jong-un the greatest propaganda video that he could possibly imagine while getting absolutely nothing in return. Absolutely nothing in return. You cannot be serious. But that's what Trump did. He gave, he got absolutely zero in return and pretended like something significant had happened. 
But Trump loves the concept that he is creating history. He loves the photo op. He loves drama, whether it's real or fake. This is the television reality show producer in him. Correct. That's this is what what he sees. He he doesn't look at this in the terms of what this might mean for the future, what kind of precedents it might set, what what kind of incentives it might create. No, no, no. That's irrelevant to him. Today, the best plot twist and the best photo op was him going into North Korea and and creating this history for no purpose. And, you know, what, there's been a lot of ways that people have criticized this, and a lot of them are valid. Um, but, but one of them that I, I saw on Twitter, which was particularly uh, interesting, is, is basically that he got to the end of the game without playing the game. And, uh, and the analogy I use is in, in, any parent knows that if you want to get your child to do something, you don't give them what they want first. In other words, if you want them to eat their vegetables, you don't give them dessert first. If you want them to get ready for bed, you know, brush their teeth, get dressed and all that, you don't let them, for instance, watch TV first. You, you do that f- first. You, you get them, all right, you get ready for bed, then we'll let you watch TV. Because then at the very least, they're, they're ready for bed once the TV portion is done. This is basic parenting. And this is this basic human behavior, especially when you're dealing with a tyrant who is not trustworthy from a regime that has manipulated everybody, including the United States, for many, many years. And is probably laughing at Donald Trump, how easily manipulated he is. So you don't jump to the end. Like if there was some sort of real, significant, solid agreement on our terms that Kim Jong-un had, uh, had agreed to in a way that was real and enforceable, that would be fantastic. And look, hey, we're going to commemorate this by the U.S. president coming into North Korea and shaking hands. That would be a positive development. I would, I would be one of the first people to go, good job. Unorthodox, crazy at times. But hell, if it works, it works. And sometimes when you're dealing with crazy, you got to be crazy. I've always been open to that idea, but that's not what this is. A lot of Trump apologists are claiming that's what this is. That, oh, well, isn't it good that we're trying something new? We haven't been successful in North Korea forever. And so, you know, it's unorthodox, so, but maybe it's working. No, that's naive. That's, that's exactly what Trump wants you to believe. Correct. But that's not based in reality. Because we got nothing in return. So if there had been some agreement that was real and this happened because of that, I'm fine with it. It's dangerous, but it, okay, I can understand it. It, it, it. But that's not what occurred here. That's not even close to what occurred here. In fact, the only thing we have is essentially to go back to where we were a year and a half ago on this, that there's some vague agreement to try to get something done in the future, blah, blah, blah. It's all bullshit. Kim Jong-un hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything even that he agreed to the last time. None of it. And Trump doesn't care because Trump is all about Trump. Correct. That's all he cares about. He only cares about what's good for him today. So he enjoyed today. He got to feel like he was a historic president He got all sorts of attention. He shocked people. There was live television coverage of this. And it doesn't matter that in the future, this is going to theoretically or even probably cause a lot of problems, not just with North Korea, but around the world. How does any future U.S. president, and believe it or not, there's going to be a future U.S. president that's not Donald Trump. How does a future U.S. president possibly deal with, with someone, or specifically Kim Jong-un, but anyone else like him. How do you do that? Trump has taken away decades of U.S. policy, U.S. standards and precedent, and he's taken away an enormous number of 
weapons or incentives that a future U.S. president can use to try to get someone like a Kim Jong-un to cooperate and to do things that are real in making sure that we don't get into some sort of nuclear war. But Trump hasn't done that. And part of why Trump hasn't done that is it's not his mindset. He doesn't care. But also, he doesn't think that anything's going to happen while he's still in charge, whether that's a year and a half, whether that's five and a half years from now. And by the way, there's been developments this week that I think are increasing the chances of it being five and a half years, which I'll get to momentarily. But he thinks as long as nothing happens while I'm president, it doesn't matter. This is why he doesn't care about the debt or the deficit. Because he's, in fact, he's even said this, apparently, to aides who tried to get him to be concerned about the exploding deficit. He doesn't care because it's not going to cause any real harm while he's in charge. So he won't get any blame for it. He'll be long gone. He'll either be dead or just, you know, retired in Mar-a-Lago or something. So he doesn't care. Correct. And that has always been my biggest fundamental problem with the Trump presidency. And we saw it in spades throughout the G20 summit. I mean, this was clearly a guy for whom psychologically the floodgates have now opened. He now believes that he is past the Russian investigation, even though Robert Mueller is supposed to testify publicly on July 17th, that he has been, in his mind, exonerated. Politically, he is now safe from that. And so now he's free to let his hair down, uh, figuratively, and, and, and suck up to every possible uh, tyrant and dictator that he likes. Uh, Vladimir Putin joking with him about getting rid of reporters and uh, how horrible fake news is, uh, joking with him to not meddle in our elections. I mean, come on, people. Really? You cannot be serious. He jokes with Vladimir Putin about not meddling in our next election. He jokes with Vladimir Putin about getting rid of journalists, a guy who's actually murdered dozens of journalists. If if a liberal or a Democrat ever did this, the right-wing media, the Mark Levins of the world, the Sean Hannity's, the Rush Limbaugh's, they would be going absolutely bananas. Correct. Bananas on a 24-7 basis, and rightfully so. But with Trump, hey, it's all just a big joke. And, and Putin's a great guy, good person, a great guy and a good person, that Vladimir Putin. Same thing with the the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS. Even Mitt Romney came out on Twitter and criticized strongly Trump's sucking up to MBS, who the whole world knows was behind the assassination of and the 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 chopping up of Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post contributor. I, I mean, and he's denied it, but Trump has consistently said wonderful things about MBS. He has he posed with him in the middle of the the team photo at the G20 summit in, in hilarious fashion because everyone else is looking at the camera and waving, and he and MBS standing right next to each other. By the way, just the fact that he's standing right next to him, I think, is significant. That should never happen. That's a position of honor. And Trump and he are, are talking to themselves, with among themselves. I mean, but but look, I mean, it is unbelievable that Trump publicly now is basking. He's embracing the idea of praising brutal tyrants and dictators. Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong Un, MBS. I mean, when he went to the to the demilitarized zone and stepped into North Korea. That was bad enough, but when he started to pull down Kim Jong-un's pants and was going to give him fellatio, and and Kim Jong-un said, no, 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 not now, we'll save that for later, that was when I thought we really crossed the line. That was a bit too far, right there. I mean, it was was unbelievable. The whole thing was unbelievable, and yet it's real, and yet it is real, and it has real impact, but not to Trump's fans, oh, no, no, I love the poorly educated. No, they love this because they trust him that somehow he has a larger plan. 
He doesn't have a larger plan. He never has a larger plan. His only plan is, I got a lot of cool media coverage today. I got to feel like I was historic. And people that say nice things to me, which is how I determine who the good guys and the bad guys are, are saying nice things about me. Powerful people are saying nice things about me. Kim Jong-un, MBS, Vladimir Putin, they all have figured this out. It's not difficult. The only only thing you need to, to be able to manipulate Donald Trump is to be powerful, to be a celebrity, somebody that the news media will cover, and to say nice things about him. That's all you have to do. And he is fair game. He will give you whatever is in his self-interest to give you with nothing in return. And that is what has happened here. And it is unbelievably dangerous. But hopefully, at least, in the short run, Trump will suffer no consequence from this because to the average American, they won't understand why this is problematic which is why we always go back to the fundamental issue here with regard to Trump's supporters. I love the poorly educated. They don't understand. They don't want to understand. They don't understand. They don't get it. They don't see the big picture. They don't put the pieces together. They don't realize that he's a con man. Therefore, they always believe that somehow he has a larger plan. There is no larger plan here. He's making it up as he goes or not. That's... It's incredibly important that people understand that. Incredibly important that he's just... He's making it up as he goes or not. And what's ever good for him on that day is what he's going to do. Now, there were other things that happened during the G20 summit that in a normal world, which we no longer live in and may never be going back to, in a normal world, we would be discussing for weeks and should be. Like, for instance... That while answering questions at a press conference, the President of the United States revealed he has no fucking idea what Western liberalism is, and he does not understand the concept of busing when it comes to the civil rights movement and the history of this country. That's not my opinion. Look it up for yourself. Look at what he said. He has no stinking idea. He thought Western liberalism was what was happening in Los Angeles and San Francisco cities, which, by the way, is a good point. Living in outside of Los Angeles and doing the show from inside Los Angeles, I can tell you, there's no question that Los Angeles uh, is becoming a hellhole and it's going to help Donald Trump in the 2020 election because it is a, a symbol of uh, liberalism uh, having failed. But that's not what Western liberalism is. It has nothing to do with it. Zero. But that's what Trump thought. He also, you know, the busing issue now somehow becoming a, a major topic in the Democratic nomination process, which I'll get to shortly. Trump revealed he had no idea what the hell he was, what, what that issue is about. Zero. None. And uh, look, I have always said that when it comes to Trump's intelligence, There's a dichotomy that a lot of people do not understand. He is a book moron. He has no concept of the basic fundamentals of what make this country work or has made this country work. He does not understand basic concepts. He doesn't have facts or figures. That's part of why he lies all the time. It's not just because he's a pathological liar. It's because he doesn't know, and so he just makes shit up. But... What appears to be a contradiction, and a lot of people think that, you know, when I make this point that I'm contradicting myself, I'm not. No, this is his his unique personality. He's a book moron, but in many ways, he is a savant. He is a savant as far as what he can get away with. He is a savant about manipulating people, and he is a savant in figuring out what is good for him at any particular moment. And and, uh, none of that is good for the country or for the world. But it's good for him. And you need to understand that. That's partially why Trump gets underestimated a lot. Everyone thinks he's a complete moron in every way. He's not. He's incredibly shrewd in a street smart sort of way. I've always referred to him kind of like HBO's character Tony Soprano. 
That's why Tony Soprano was successful. Tony Soprano couldn't have told you about the Federalist Papers, but Tony Soprano (laughs) knew how to get things done for him and for his organization and how to survive. And that's what Trump does. Trump is a survivor. And so you need to understand that about Trump to be able to interpret everything that's going on and what the future is likely to hold. Now, there were some other developments that may have in psychologically or subconsciously may have facilitated Trump doing this stunt at the, at the DMZ, uh, where it's my opinion that part of why he is focusing so much on Kim Jong-un, it's not just his, his uh, bizarre fascination with uh, dictatorial tyrants. It's also his impotence on the domestic front that I think has him interested in doing things in foreign policy. Because in foreign policy, the president has a lot more uh, power, at least in the short run, than they do domestically. Like, for instance, his border wall emergency funding got blocked just a couple of days ago by a federal judge. Now, look, I am very conflicted on that particular issue. I think this is an abuse of presidential power that Republicans and conservatives will rue the day of as soon as there's a Democratic president who wants to go around Congress and wants funding for a climate change emergency or a, or a gun emergency or whatever the liberal cause of the day is. That's not the way the process is supposed to work. I also am somebody who is against illegal immigration and do believe that there is some, you know, by some definitions, a crisis on the border. But legally, the president has made statements that made it clear he didn't think that there was a crisis at the border because he was doing this to get around Congress. So I, I can I have sympathy for the issue of the crisis on the border. But legally, I, I don't think that this was done properly. And so, you know, Trump has that. Uh, issue. He, he can't even get a, a, a question put into the 2020 census because that got blocked by his own Supreme Court, although temporarily, although the way they blocked it, it was really kind of conniving, in my opinion. And this is a lot, a lot of a lot of times, especially Justice Roberts will do this. I think he thinks of himself as being very clever, where on the issue, they didn't necessarily uh, go against Trump on the census question, the qu- question basically being, are you a citizen of the United States of America, which you think should be a pretty reasonable question. This is an issue that I think Trump wins on. It, I mean, that's it shouldn't be off the table to ask during the census, hey, are you a citizen? But the pro-illegal immigration crowd is so terrified. Oh, if you ask whether people are citizens, they won't answer the question, they won't fill out the census, and then the numbers of illegal immigrants will go down, and then that will hurt Democratic legislative representation because they're mostly in Democratic districts. Now, To me, that whole system is completely screwed up because I don't believe that the Founding Fathers intended when they said a census is counting persons, I don't think they ever intended that we would be living in a country where we have a whole welfare state that would be a magnet for people to come here illegally and that therefore we would we would count everybody equally as the same person, whether they were a citizen or a non-citizen. That concept never occurred to them. The, the federal government would get so large and be so generous in giving out free stuff that somehow we would get to a world where people could come here, live off the land, live off of government benefits, not be citizens, and then not even get counted as citizens or not citizens. That, to me, is the Supreme Court question that should have been at, at, at hand here. Did, is persons at the, at the, during a census, if when you're counting persons, does that mean citizens or just anybody? that just happens to be here during the time period when they they send out the surveys. I really don't believe that there's any logic to counting all persons, even people who are here illegally. But unfortunately, that boat has probably sailed a long time ago from a political correctness standpoint. And so, you know, Trump can't even get this question asked. The Supreme Court has temporarily blocked it, but they have effectively... In all, for all intents and purposes, they have truly blocked it. Because here's why. Because 
this is going to now apparently be tied up in court long enough to where it doesn't become part of the 2020 census. Trump has even theorized laughably that we should delay the 2020 census for the courts to be able to decide this. Well, you can't do that. And I believe that the court knows that. And they also know that Trump can't be president, at least constitutionally, past 2024. That means there's not going to be another census under his rule or reign, as he probably would refer to it. That means that effectively this issue is dead without them having to actually take a position on it, which is frankly wimpy, uh, but also classic for the, the Roberts court. So, you know, Trump is getting defeated on a couple of pretty big items. He's not going to get his wall. I've been telling you this for a very, very long time. There was never going to be a wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Yeah, Build yeah. That, that was wall. never going to happen. Build that wall. It was all a lie. It was all a con. It was all a scam. That was never, ever going to be the, something that occurred. And certainly Mexico was never going to pay for it. That's the reality of it. Now, Trump will be able to blame the courts. That's all he really wants. All he really wants and all his, his cult really wants is to see him fighting. So all he wants is to be able to say to his cult, I'm fighting. I'm fighting against the left or in the left media, the left courts, even though it's not a left court. It's a, it's a Supreme Court that's got five conservatives on it, two of which were appointed by him. But it doesn't matter. All he wants is the the ability to say, hey, I'm fighting for it. I did everything I could, whether it's Obamacare, where he didn't do everything he could. Uh, He can blame that on John McCain, which is not legitimate. I've said this many, many times, but he does that all the time. He can blame, uh, you know, the issue of the wall on on the courts, even though we had a Republican Congress for two years. He had a deal on the table for a wall. He did not take it. Uh, So it's all a lie. It's all bull crap. But it doesn't matter because, you know, we are, as I often say, uh, when it comes to his cult, I love the poorly educated and they all they want to do is see him fighting. That's all they want to do. And he is fighting (laughs) nothing that's going to actually help any of us. He's even fighting the U.S. women's soccer team, for heaven's sakes. He got in a fight on Twitter with Megan Rapopone, Rapino, who is the star for the women's soccer team who's playing in the World Cup. Uh, you know, she has said she's not going to go to the fucking White House, which, frankly, I don't think it was appropriate because they haven't even won the World Cup yet. And Trump rightfully said that. But just the idea of a U.S. president getting in a fight with the U.S. women's soccer team as they're still playing the, the World Cup is just freaking ridiculous, right, Charles Barkley? It's just flat out ridiculous. It, it is absurd. But again, this is something that we would probably be talking about for at least a week or so, and at least until the World Cup is over, and it's now pretty much already forgotten. And all of this, of course, is taking in the is happening within the context of the the attempt by some Democrats still to put together an impeachment case against the president. Robert Mueller is now finally uh, going to testify, apparently, on July 17th in front of two congressional committees in a public session. He's apparently had to have been subpoenaed to do this. And I don't look, I I always hesitate to, to talk about things that I don't fully understand. And maybe there's some explanation for this that that is beyond my comprehension. But I do not get uh, why Robert Mueller is so incredibly hesitant to to testify that he would require a subpoena. Uh, I, I get that it's not going to be comfortable. Obviously, Republicans are going to humiliate themselves in their try to support uh, their cult leader, President Donald Trump. It's going to be ugly. There's going to be absurd things said. Uh, hopefully Mueller will be able to put those people in their place. I, I think he might be able to do that. He should be able to do that fairly easily because the facts are on his side and he does have enough credibility with a large segment of the public to do that. But uh, I think it has been incredibly selfish, uh, at least somewhat wimpy, incredibly short-sighted and naive on Robert Mueller's part to fight this as long as he has. And in my opinion, I've been saying this for a while, but the window is basically shut on this. It's too late. Uh, Adam Schiff, the uh, the Democrat who uh, chairs the Intelligence Committee, which is one of the two committees where Mueller 
will be uh, testifying has said that uh, time is running out. I think even he has been uh, overly optimistic. I think that time has essentially run out. Uh, I'm not willing to say that with 100% certainty at this point. I'd like to see what Mueller has to say. But based upon his prior statements, I don't expect it to be any sort of massive gangbusters, any sort of huge bombshells. I don't think it's going to be a game changer. I think it might move public opinion uh, a couple of points which could uh, you know, provide some at least temporary momentum for impeachment. But it's too late. It's going to be the middle of summer. Most people aren't going to be paying that much attention. It will get huge attention. It will get huge uh, TV ratings. But this is a massive country. It's going to be <laughs> a lot more people who will not be paying attention because it's the middle of July. And frankly, it's beyond their comprehension anyway. And more importantly, to a lot of people, this is now old news. Once it becomes old news, people just don't care anymore, especially when they think they know the final result, which Bill Barr handed to them. Allegedly no collusion and, and no obstruction, which we all know is bullshit. That's not true at all. Anyone who's read the report will tell you that's a thousand percent inaccurate. But, you know, my biggest uh, problem with the, the delay is not just – the idea that we're now in the middle of summer and now we're heading into a presidential election campaign and impeaching a president in the middle of an election campaign when you don't have a massive smoking gun that the average person can understand, uh, that's, a, that's a problem right off the bat. But the bigger problem is just the, the whole philosophy of this thing in the delay. So you got the Mueller report that's now been out for three months. Well, if Donald Trump is really a threat to the republic... How in the world are you allowing him to still be president and going to the G20 summit and meeting with Vladimir Putin and publicly, uh, you know, decrying reporters and saying we ought to get rid of them and saying don't meddle in our next election? Ha ha he he. If this is really a true crisis, then why the delay? I mean, the analogy that I use is if you are going to get a divorce, if you decided that uh, the, the, your spouse is such a danger. Let's say you have kids and you think your spouse is a danger to your kids or maybe to you because you're in an abusive relationship. Do you delay several months and wait until after the spouse gets a, to go on a private vacation with the two kids that you're afraid that they might uh, do you know, some abuse to? No, you would never do that. You would, you would go to every length you could to stop that from happening immediately. Yet Democrats have been sitting on their hands, afraid of their own shadow, largely because of Nancy Pelosi, for three damn months now. And, 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 it's gonna, and you know, by the time Mueller testifies, it'll be four months. And I, I really don't think that most people are going to care that much, especially when Right around the corner is an election, and people can decide, well, you know what, uh, let's just decide this for um, ourselves. Uh, this shouldn't be a Congress's role. We're just going uh, to de- you know, determine whether or not he deserves another four years or not. Well, I, and I, by the way, I get that philosophy. It scares the hell out of me because I think Democrats are in the process of blowing their nomination process uh, in a way that might uh, facilitate Trump winning re-election. One other point on this this whole uh, issue of of Mueller and the Russian investigation, I do want to at least mention that Jimmy Carter, the worst president up until Trump of my lifetime, uh, came out and said that he does not believe that Trump is a legitimate president, that he believes that uh, Russia influenced the the result of the 2016 election and that Trump should not be considered legitimate. And I don't agree with that. I think Trump was legitimately elected. Now, was there an asterisk to it? Absolutely. Can you make an argument that Russia helped influence the election? Yes, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan. And I've written about this. You can find it on Google. I think I've made a pretty compelling argument that without Russia's influence, Trump probably does not win Wisconsin and Michigan. But that doesn't mean he doesn't win the election because even if he loses wisconsin and michigan he still is probably going to win pennsylvania and certainly florida and that's game set match so i haven't been convinced that russia influenced pennsylvania partially because in pennsylvania hillary's turnout was perfectly fine see her turnout in wisconsin and michigan was horrendous which was exactly what the russian strategy was 
It was a voter suppression strategy, and it worked dramatically in Wisconsin and in Michigan. That's not what happened in Pennsylvania. Trump won Pennsylvania because he got incredible turnout from the middle of the state. And I think he got incredible turnout from the middle of the state for two basic reasons. Number one, uh, the middle of the state of Pennsylvania is incredibly racist. I've spent a lot of time there. Uh, James Carville rightfully once said that Pennsylvania is Pittsburgh and Philadelphia separated by Alabama. And I think that that is an understatement. That having spent a lot of time there, that is an, I think the middle of Pennsylvania is probably worse than most of Alabama is. Uh, again, spent a lot of time there uh, talking to a lot of the people who ended up determining this election. In fact, I did not believe Trump could win Pennsylvania in 2016 because I thought these uh, drug-using white racists couldn't get to the polls on time. But apparently they did. Apparently the crystal meth did not uh, prevent them from actually getting to the polls. So, um, so that's number one. Number two, there also happened to be a conservative Republican senator who was running for re-election in Pennsylvania who actually got more votes than Donald Trump. So there was something, and that same thing happened in, in Florida, by the way, with Marco Rubio getting more votes than Donald Trump in the 2016 election. So there were some u- unique situations and characteristics that are going on in 2016 that are not going to be happening in 2020. Which is not in Trump's favor, but Democrats might be trying to alleviate that problem for him. So I think what Carter said is interesting. It might even be counterproductive uh, because I know a lot of people are offended by this idea that they think Democrats are trying to overturn a legitimate election. And this plays right into that. But I at least wanted to mention it because I don't think it's a crazy concept. I just don't think it's been proven And for a former president to say it without it being proven is probably not a great idea. Uh, Now, let me turn to the Democrats and why I think that they are in the process, as I have been very concerned would be the case, that they're going to blow this whole thing. Uh, If you're a fan of this podcast or anything that I've written, you know that my bedrock belief on the Democratic nominating process is that if Joe Biden is the nominee and he is allowed to get through the nominating process without getting destroyed and that everything else is exactly as it is today, Joe Biden beats Donald Trump at least nine out of ten times, at least. And it's because he appeals to those people I referred to in Pennsylvania. They're not afraid of him, all right? He's effectively from Pennsylvania. He was a senator from Delaware. He's an old white guy. None of them are going to be saying, I got to get to the polls because the other person's going to give all my shit to black people because that's, that's what's motivating them, all right? They don't believe that about Biden. So they're going to go sit home and do crystal meth that day instead of going to the polls. That's, that, that's what the white trash in Pennsylvania will do, and then the panhandle of Florida is the same way. And that's why Biden wins Wisconsin, wins Michigan, wins Pennsylvania, and that's ball game. He probably also wins Florida with any luck. Because frankly, you know, being old in Florida is not a hindrance. <laughs> Joe Biden is young in Florida, at least to a large part of Florida. So, so that it's those four states that Joe Biden uh, appeals to the swing voter in a way that no other Democrat can, especially since he's already been vice president for eight years. That's a, as solid a path to victory as you're likely going to get against an incumbent president ever. Unfortunately, as I've been suspecting for a long time, this is not going to be good enough for Democrats. And we saw it this week with their first two debates. The first night debate was totally irrelevant. I said it was irrelevant because there's only one person on that stage that could win the nomination, and that was Elizabeth Warren. I I don't believe that she would beat Donald Trump because of the whole Pocahontas Native American DNA situation, which would be a disaster for her in a general election. Uh, But not having Joe Biden on the stage basically made night one irrelevant, and the ratings uh, uh, were indicative of that. Night two, the ratings were huge. 18 million people watched, which was a record for that type of debate which is not a good thing for Joe Biden because it did not go well for Joe, for Joe Biden. Well, oh, God. Yeah, it did not go well for him, although I'm not sure it was necessarily his fault. He should have anticipated that this was going to happen. Uh, he clearly did not. There's been some speculation that he's not been listening to his advisors, although I'm a little skeptical of any uh, not directly sourced report because the media is dead set against Joe Biden. 
uh, on both ends. And I'm going to be writing about this this week for Mediate, so check that out. I will, we'll tweet it out at uh, Individual One Pod on our Twitter handle. But I think this is Joe Biden's biggest problem. Both the left and the right media, and almost everybody in between, is incentivized in seeing him destroyed, or at least not winning the nomination. It is in nobody's, in, is no one's self-interest in the news media for Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee. Nobody's. The right-wing media knows he's the biggest threat to Trump. Trump has made that clear. They're doing Trump's bidding by destroying him and trying to destroy his street cred with moderate voters. And the left-wing media wants no part of Joe Biden Partially because I think they subconsciously, a lot of them want Trump to keep being in office because it's great for them from a business standpoint. It gives them lots of content and they love being on the attack. But more, you know, directly consciously, I think that they uh, they love the drama. They don't want a boring primary and they want to fall in love with somebody. They want someone who is historic, progressive, super woke, gets their uh, private parts all juicy. That's what they want. Joe Biden does not do that. And so there is no media incentivized in his victory. Unlike the right-wing media was incentivized with Donald Trump's Republican nominating process victory in 2016. That's a huge problem because it sets him up for what happened in the debate with Kamala Harris. And Kamala Harris went after him with this incredibly old issue of busing. That the best I can figure is as ambiguous as could possibly be. There are uh, there are strong arguments on both sides. There's certainly no clear cut racism in anything that Joe Biden did. There were lots of black people who were in favor of the policy Joe Biden was in favor of. 44 freaking years ago, as if this matters at all. It's not an issue today for all intents and purposes. But but Kamala Harris decided that this was the way to inject herself into the public consciousness, jumpstart her campaign, and she played the black card and the female card. And she played them brilliantly from a political standpoint, because she knew Joe Biden was not going to attack her back. And for those who say that Joe Biden, to be clear, I don't even like Joe Biden. I'm just telling you he's the one that would beat Trump. There's a lot of problems with Joe Biden. Don't agree with him on most issues. I think he's a moron. I think he's a gaff machine. But he seems like a good enough person, and he would get us back to some semblance of normalcy, and he could win. So those are the reasons why I have been perceived as promoting Joe Biden. But Kamala Harris knew that Joe Biden was defenseless. And for those who say that Joe Biden didn't handle the situation well, I ask you to answer the question, what the hell was he supposed to do? So he's the white male. This is the, unfortunately, the, for Democrats, this is the, the rules that they have set up. He's the white male who's dominating in the polls. He's going to attack a black female who is uh, in single digits in most polls? That makes him a bully. That makes him a racist. That makes him a sexist. That makes him like Trump. (laughs) That's the worst thing he could possibly do. Correct. So he's screwed no matter what he does. And so he basically, you know, did not have a a good response. He infamously said, my time is up, which people saw saw as being metaphorical to being an old guy. And uh, literally his time is up. And Kamala Harris broke Barack Obama's rule for this whole thing, which was let's not become a a circular firing squad, and did so against Obama's own vice president for eight years. And now this is the part of this that is so baffling. We're now living in a world where liberals so want, at least subconsciously, Trump to be reelected, that they want to relitigate something from 45 years ago that occurred way before Joe Biden was the first black president's vice president for eight years, which never got mentioned during any of that time period. And and Barack Obama has been clear on the record that picking Joe Biden as his vice president was his best decision as president. Yet it apparently means nothing to the hard left and the left-wing media that somehow Joe Biden can be attacked on a race basis over something that's ancient and, as I've said, incredibly ambiguous. Incredibly ambiguous. Not even remotely clear-cut some sort of racism from even 1975 standards. And so the media, of course, was all in a tizzy. They were so lusting 
for Kamala Harris to make this thing interesting, to bring down Joe Biden. They love a Kamala Harris uh, candidacy. Why? Well, because it's historic. We had the first black president. Now we're going to go for the first black female president. Woohoo! Wow, this is awesome. We can feel our private parts getting all juicy again. It feels like 2008 all over again. Well, and, and uh, my, my God, did they jump the gun on this? Now, they may end up being right. Let's be clear. They may end up being very right about how this thing goes down. But, uh, but boy, oh boy, did they jump to conclusions. So they have this confrontation. It doesn't go well for Biden. It's not even close to a knockout. And then on MSNBC, Chris Matthews, who I know a little bit, I've met him. He's actually grew up with my mother and my aunts and uncles in Somerton, Philadelphia. He's a nut, and he does this all the time. He's got the attention span of Donald Trump, and he has Kamala Harris on the set, and he actually has the audacity to not just suggest, but to ask her whether or not she finished, literally finished Joe Biden on that night. And even she was incredulous in the response. Is Biden finished after tonight? No, I don't think so. No. In your eyes? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And it, you know, it reminded a lot of people of what happened in 2007, 2008 when he fell in love with Barack Obama. I felt this thrill going up my leg. (laughs) That's really what, what Chris Matthews is about. He's all about feeling. And so, and, 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 and of course, these people are also living in a, uh, a time warp. I mean, Chris Matthews constantly talks about the Kennedy-Nixon debates as if they happened a few years ago instead of in 1960. Uh, I mean, because he's obsessed with that. Well, in that world, a debate really mattered because guess what? The entire adult population was watching because there was nothing else to watch. And everyone was forced to watch it whether they were interested or not 18 million is a large number for a a primary debate but it's nowhere near the entire adult population so nothing i mean donald i mean granted we live in a world where highlights matter but you know it boggles the mind to think what would have had to have happened to actually finish joe biden from a strong front runner uh in in one debate because not everyone's watching and that did not happen. But Chris Matthews, so eager for a duplication of the Barack Obama narrative. I felt this thrill going up my leg. Uh, he, here he is with Kamala Harris doing effectively the same thing in the destruction of somebody that has been an icon for the, you know, the liberal Chris Matthews movement for many decades. Is Biden finished after tonight? No, I don't think so. No. In your eyes? No, I don't think so. It's and Kamala Harris. I mean, of course, what's she going to say? Yeah, I think he's finished. You know, I mean, she needs to be at least something because, frankly, she played dirty pool. I mean, that was dirty pool on her part, but it was smart dirty pool because she knew she could get away with it because she has the black card and the female card. That's that's the key here. She played those cards. Biden in the the new super liberal wokeness world has almost no cards. He's an old white male who's not seen as super liberal. The only card he has is I was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years, and he's not even allowed to use that. So he's cardless, and he's incredibly vulnerable now because now there's blood. See, now once Kamala Harris has broken the rule of not creating a circular firing squad, now there's blood in the water. And now uh, I'm not sure where it stops. I really don't. It's going to take a while, but I see this as a, a war of attrition, and I don't see how Biden is likely to turn this around. It's going to be exceedingly difficult for him to do so. And the other candidates on the stage, whether it's Marianne Williamson, who is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, I mean, we could do a whole show on how the hell she turned out up on the stage, but she, you know, she was the most dramatic example, but everybody on the stage in those two uh, debates were nuts in some particular way because they're trying to appeal to nutty people. They're trying to appeal to the far left 10% of the Democratic Party because that's who's watching. That's who's motivated to watch in, in June, uh, you know, way before the voting actually starts in a primary process. 
Now, David Brooks from the New York Times wrote a column, Please Don't Drive Me Away, Democrats. He's a very moderate, supposed Republican, uh, you know, kind of a PC guy. That's why he's running for the New York Times. But he, he looked at those two debates and says, well, wait a minute, hold on. You're not really going to force me to consider either supporting Trump or not supporting anybody here, right? Well, they are. It's very clear from those first two debates that that's exactly what they're going to do. Uh, they're not going to accept victory. No, 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 no. They're going to make this far more difficult than it needs to be. They're going to take basically this out of their own hands. They're going to take this out of their own control. Because if it's Joe Biden who is uh, uh, not destroyed by a nominating process, they control their own destiny in the 2020 election. With any other candidate, they do not control their own destiny. They are, they are uh, giving up their destiny to whether or not Donald Trump can get enough votes and turn out enough people in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida, which is certainly possible based upon what happened in 2016, and, and doing so against weak candidates that allow him the ability to do that. Now, it is possible, I want to, I want to make this clear, it is possible that Trump is so unpopular that even with a good economy and even with a horrible opponent, he still might not be able to get enough votes. You know, national polls indicate he's stuck at like 42%. If that is true, and I'm not sure that it is, but if that is true, he still can't win. But that is the siren song right now for Democrats, because a lot of Democrats think they are free to just go ahead and nominate whoever the hell they want. Because anybody can beat Trump. That is not true. You have an incumbent president with a good economy who has a cult behind him, an electoral college advantage that showed that he can win the presidency while losing the popular vote by three million votes. And that was before he was president of the United States. That is not an easy task. And Democrats are fooling themselves that they think, well, it doesn't matter. You know, we don't need old Joe. We can go with a Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg, uh, Bernie Sanders. I still can't believe is is who they might go with, but that's theoretically possible. But that's frankly who, who we're talking about here. Those are the four people that would have by far the best chance of winning the nomination if it's not Joe Biden. Harris. Warren, Buttigieg, and Sanders, and all four of them take an election that is a referendum on whether or not Donald Trump should be president of the United States, which is what a Biden-Trump contest would be. They take that referendum and they flip it upside down and they turn it into a referendum on the Democratic candidate. Do you want Elizabeth Warren to be the first female president, a super liberal from Massachusetts, who thinks she's a Native American? Do you want... Uh, uh, Kamala Harris to be the first African-American female president who's a super liberal from California, which is not going to play in Pennsylvania. Let me tell you, the people who elected uh, Donald Trump in Pennsylvania and Florida in the panhandle of Florida ain't voting for Kamala Harris. And a lot of parts, part of it is racism. Part of it's sexism. But there ain't no way they're voting for a black female from California. From Northern California, no freaking way, unless the economy tanks, and in which case, then it doesn't. Nothing matters because then Democrats might be right that anyone could beat Donald Trump. But we're not there yet, and it doesn't look like we're going to be there. Buttigieg, you're going to you're going to turn this election into a referendum on whether or not a small town mayor who's 37 years old and married to a man should be president of the United States. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I don't know. I mean, Buttigieg could theoretically win, but why would you change a, an election about Trump and turn it into one that's about whether or not your uh, uh, the 37 year old gay mayor of South Bend is qualified to be president? Bernie Sanders turns an election against Trump into a referendum on Trump into a referendum on are you a capitalist or whether you're a socialist? Well, guess who wins that battle? At least in the key states, Donald Trump does. It feels like Democrats are trying to run the twenty the twenty forty election in twenty twenty. By twenty forty, Bernie Sanders would beat Donald Trump, but not in twenty twenty. We're not there yet. And this always goes to what I say about Democrats, which is they will always, always, always overplay their hand. They'll always overreact. They'll always pretend that things are happening way faster than they really are. Is Biden finished after tonight? No, I don't think so. No. In your eyes? No, I don't think so. <sighs> 
he might he, he probably is finished, by the way. I'm not willing to say that 100% yet, kind of like with the impeachment situation, but uh, it's looking that way. You know what it feels like to me? You know, I've been concerned about this for a long time, and it's kind of like a football team where uh, you're going into the season and you're concerned about your offensive line. You know, you think you have a good team, but it's possible you might not be able to protect the quarterback. That your offensive line is a little weak, but you're not sure. And then you play that first game, which was what the first debate was. You play that first game and you realize, oh shit, the offensive line is as bad as I thought it might be. We're not going to be able to protect the quarterback. Our quarterback's not going to survive a 16-game season. That's what's going to happen to Joe Biden. When When he takes a hit in the first game and the offensive line is nowhere to be found, and there's no one to protect him, and there's no left-wing media to protect him, and the right-wing media is thrilled that he's going down. I'm sorry, Joe Biden, especially at his age, is highly unlikely, highly unlikely to be able to survive a 16-game season. And the only way he can survive is if the structural advantages he has has, are so great that there's no way for him to lose, and I'm not convinced that that's the case. He has a lot of structural advantages. Celebrity, the Obama VP, the place in the polls, the fact that Sanders is blocking a lot of these other contenders from getting into the top tier. But all of that can evaporate pretty darn quickly. And uh, if the first debate is any uh, indication, that's exactly what's going to happen. I, I want to mention, since I re- referenced it in the last uh, podcast, the E. Jean Carroll uh, allegation of rape against Donald Trump. I have written an extensive column at Mediate, which you can find, which we uh, did already tweet at Individual One Pod, our Twitter handle. I don't want to get into too many details on this. I do that in my other podcast, The World According to Zig, which you might want to check out uh, during this week's episode. But I have shifted my position on E. Jean Carroll just a little bit. She is nuts. There is no question that she is nuts. Correct. But something happened between E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump. Donald Trump is lying that there was never any episode between E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump, uh, whether it was uh, 23 or so years ago uh, at a, in a, uh, a classy dressing room uh, in, Washington, in New York City. Something happened. Uh, I am convinced by that, one, by her level of detail, and two, more importantly, by her, her two corroborating witnesses who finally came forward publicly and did an interview with the New York Times uh, in a podcast this week. So uh, if you're interested in that topic, please go check it out. That doesn't mean necessarily that I think Donald Trump committed a criminal rape in that episode. In fact, there's some evidence from Carol herself that indicates that that's not the case, that this could have been a a situation that is being rethought through the lens of the post me too world. And now how all the rules have now changed. Uh, I'm not making a value judgment necessarily about that. I'm certainly not defending Donald Trump. I'm trying to figure out what actually did and did not happen. And so if you're curious about that, please make sure you check out my column uh, again at our uh, Twitter handle. I had an interesting uh, situation occur this week, a classic Ziegler situation occur, where I went to the Reagan Library to uh, check out a speech by George Will, a conservative columnist, a conservative legend who has been very anti-Trump. I respect him quite a bit. He's selling a book about conservatism. And so I was fascinated to see how he was going to deal with Donald Trump. And because uh, you're, you're selling a book at the Reagan Library about conservatism. I've been to the Reagan Library before, which is close to where I live in Southern California. And I've seen situations where it's basically the Trump cult has taken over the Reagan Library. And it's very depressing. So I was fascinated to see how the crowd would react to George Will and how he would react to the crowd. Well, the crowd was very large. It seemed very similar to a past event that I had gone to at the Reagan Library, which was very pro-Trump. But Will, for his own, uh, from his own standpoint, did an incredible thing. He spoke for an hour, taking questions from a moderator, about his book about conservatism, and never said the word Trump. Never said the word Trump. And of course, I was stunned by this, and I wanted to ask my own question. Because Trump, uh, you know, how do you talk about the contemporary, contemporaneous conservative movement and presidential history without mentioning Donald Trump and the coup that he has uh, inflicted on the Republican Party and the conservative movement? I was astonished by that. And I, I wanted to raise the issue that, that George Will himself 
had done so recently where he called, as I have done for for over a couple of years now, he called the Republican Party a cult under Donald Trump. So I, uh, as I want to do with these events, I anonymously uh, got uh, you know the ability to ask a question, and I asked the, that question of George Will, and I found his his response and the audience reaction to it to be quite fascinating. Here's my very uh, crude recording of that episode. Um, Mr. Will, you have said that the Republican Party under Donald Trump has become a cult. Uh, I unfortunately agree with that. I'm curious what you think Ronald Reagan would view or how he would view today's Republican Party under Donald Trump. And would he think of it as a cult? And how do you think he would uh, interpret what has happened? Well, I, I think he would say what he said about the Democratic Party. I didn't leave, I didn't leave it at that me. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan would approve of some of the stuff that's being done. Any Republican would have wanted to cut corporate taxes. Barack Obama wanted to cut corporate taxes because ours were anomalous in the world. Any Republican president would have had a deregulatory agenda. Ronald Reagan did. Any Republican president would have selected judges of the sort approved by the Federalist Society, of which I am a card-carrying member. What distinguishes, and I really don't want to get partisan here, but what distinguishes the current president from Ronald Reagan is his manners. And manners matter. My wife, the ferocious Presbyterian, hitherto mentioned, was a, before she was Ronald Reagan's last director of White House Communications, she was a speechwriter for him. And he would not allow people to, to attack Democrats. He just didn't do that. Um, it, Ronald Reagan was polite. He was a gentleman. Uh, he was dignified. And uh, try. And I'll give you an example. Try to imagine Ronald Reagan overseas quoting a dictator, the head of North Korea, approvingly quoting a dictator calling a former vice president of the United States a low IQ idiot. Now that's, just try to imagine that. Unimaginable. Because Ronald Reagan knew, and he sold his speechwriters, you quoted the end of his Lincoln's first inaugural address. The paragraph above that begins, we are not enemies, we must not be enemies. And that was Ronald Reagan's approach to politics. Now, I was surprised that the audience reacted so warmly to George Will's response there. Now, to be clear, George Will's response was as politically correct as could possibly be under the circumstances. He's trying to sell a book to a crowd he knows, at the very least, is very sympathetic, if not enthusiastic, regarding Donald Trump. So for, it was a skillful, although somewhat gutless, response uh, by George Will. Um, I attempted, after that event ended, to get... Uh, the, I was trying to book George Will on this podcast. And unfortunately, I could not find his publicist. The best I could do was get a handwritten message to a person who said they would give it to his publicist, which I'm sure was never going to work, and I've gotten no response to. George Will is a more difficult person to get to. I have no way of getting to him. I would love to have him on the show, uh, but I have a feeling that that's the best we're ever going to do there. Uh, it gave me some hope that the audience responded in that way, but not that much. <laughs> Because I do think that there's a lot of conservatives who are uncomfortable with Donald Trump. But that is actually letting Donald Trump off the hook to just say it's about manners. This is way, way, way deeper than manners. And I think what we saw at the G20 summit and especially Kim Jong-un and the what occurred today, which obviously happened well after George Will made those comments. I'm sure George Will is, is as outraged as anybody that, uh, that Trump would go ahead and, and go to North Korea with getting nothing in return uh, to kiss up to a brutal dictator like Kim Jong-un. So uh, there's, there's a, it's, it goes way 
way deeper and is way more problematic and way more serious than just manners. But at least uh, George Will was willing to say that. And at least Trump supporters in Southern California at the Reagan Library were willing to stand up and say, yeah, that sounds right. On that, uh, that's about as positive a note as I can come up with on this particularly depressing Newsweek. As is always the case, uh, we end with our updated percentages on Trump not serving out his first term in office and being reelected. And uh, we're right back into the pessimistic uh, boat where I now think it's only a 4% chance that Trump does not finish his first term in office. And I now believe that, that I think for the first time, it is a better than 50% chance that Donald Trump will be reelected, largely because of the way the Democrats are handling the first part of their nominating process. I'm going to put it at 51% for the record on this June 30th, 2019. It is now slightly better than 50 chance, 50% chance that Donald Trump somehow wins reelection against all odds. Still a long, long way to go. Please remember to uh, subscribe to this program, rate it, it via social media, follow on Twitter at individual one pod. That's at individual number one pod. We'll be back again on Wednesday, um, releasing an episode probably Wednesday early afternoon, Los Angeles time. Until then, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.